Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today, we are having an awesome guest, and we're honored he's here, Robert Black. Rob is a lecturer in information activities at Cranfield University in the United Kingdom, and he's there on behalf of the UK Defense Academy. We're going to get into a little bit more about his background in a minute. He is the former deputy director of the UK's National Cyber Deception Laboratory, and at the Defense Academy, he helps educate senior military leaders about warfare in the information age. He has several interests in cybersecurity, but one that particularly is of keen interest to me is the role of influence and deception in cyber. So we're honored to have you, Rob. Thank you for joining the show. Uh, it's great to be here and really looking forward to a good conversation. So hopefully I can offer some interesting thoughts and change some thinking as well. Oh, I I hope it's as tangential as tangential gets because no one listens to me. They frankly don't care what I say. But uh, when we get someone of your caliber on, then they might actually pay attention. So <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll have a good conversation. And if we listen to each other, then hopefully everyone else will find that useful as well. So Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, let's start this off with just a brief background on yourself, you know, and your journey into cyber. How did this uh, come about? Okay. Um, well, it's what I'm looking at the time, 2023 now. Um, so I've pretty much been in cyber for just over a decade and I'm the biggest imposter out there. I cannot really? fix computers. I cannot code. And I fundamentally question whether or not should be in cyber because I don't have any of the technical accreditations that people celebrate on LinkedIn every day. But despite that, I feel like I've had a very significant contribution in all of the roles I've played. And I've played several roles throughout my time in my cybersecurity career, but I take a very non-traditional approach. So my background is uh, I studied a master's in law and then uh, law and international relations, looking at the use of force in the international community. So the okay. whole role of the United Nations Security Council, uh, measures we employed during the 90s, Somalia, Rwanda, uh, up through to Iraq, even looking at Afghanistan, how the international community came together to use force for uh, protective measures and a collective security approach. And I say that because it's quite important to, I think, what comes next. Um, following that, I joined um, part of the Ministry of Defence in the UK, where I was a policy analyst. So I worked with the research and development community, and I looked at improving ways of fighting war, where we could influence our adversarial decision makers to adopt our courses of action more, more quickly, more succinctly, and at a less attritional cost. So helping them be coerced or deterred into the courses of action that we wanted. And I worked across traditional kinetic campaigns, um, thinking a lot and planning around that. So thinking like the shock and awe in Iraq, for example. I worked at um, sort of the more traditional nuclear deterrent campaigns. We spent a lot of money investing in a nuclear deterrent capability, and we assessed it in terms of how big the bang was, how accurately we were, we're confident that the bang would go off where we needed it to go off. Um, but we never really thought about the fact that when we pushed that button, that had already failed in doing its original job. We hadn't deterred the bad guy from doing uh, what we didn't want him to do. So I spent a lot of time looking at what we could do to communicate effective deterrence, which again has overlap in cyberspace. Um, I did a few other things involved uh, working on the UK Olympics bid and the security around that. Wow. Uh, chased a few pirates off the Middle East uh, or, or sort of off Africa. I was based in the Middle East with the US Fifth Fleet. Um, and then in about God, 2011, I think, I realized that I could actually get paid for playing on the internet and that seemed a good idea. Um, but actually, more fundamentally, the internet was shaping how society was interacting, and it was going to have a significant impact on warfare in the future. And that really got me involved in this new age of warfare and state contest. Um, 
And since then, it's been fascinating. I spent a lot of time working with the research community, looking at how we can influence people online, how we can shape relationships online, how we can build more effective relationships. Um, and a lot of the time I was told that wasn't cyber because it wasn't technical enough. It wasn't all about the coding enough. And then thankfully the Russians came along and they started doing things in social media with certain elections. I don't need to mention any presidential elections, yep. for example, the Brexit referendum. And people went, oh, that's quite cybery. And they mm, suddenly yeah. started realizing that cyber could be a little bit more broader than the technical aspects of cyber. Um, I then moved to the Defense Academy where I now lecture our military staff thinking about integrating cyber into military operations and the relationship between intelligence, war fighting, cyber operations and so on. And I spend a bit of time doing a couple of other projects, say focusing on the National Cyber Deception Lab. I've just left that, but that was really interesting, getting challenging the thinking around the use of deception and proactively using it in our defense of our networks. And I also work running the UK Cyber Nine Twelve Strategy Challenge, which is a great initiative uh, launched by the Atlantic Council over in the US, but now around the world. I run the UK perspective on it, uh, where we just focus on building the next generation of cybersecurity leaders who are competent, not just in technology, but strategy and policy thinking as well. So they take a much more holistic approach to the challenges that we're dealing with. And alongside that, I run a few events and activities for the UK Foreign Office, our State Department, thinking about cyber, cyber policy, cyber considerations in today's age. And there's a few other bits, but I'll stop there, perhaps then. There's, there's no way with that background you're an imposter. <laughs> well, but... I'm technically not a cyber person. That's the challenge. And that's one of the assumptions I really want to challenge because I do believe I've made a contribution, but I don't fit the traditional mold. I don't have a hoodie that I'm wearing today. Um, and I don't have the appropriate technical accreditation. So, you know what? If a, a hoodie is what you want, we'll send you one uh, gratis. Uh, <laughs> you notice my influence ploy to get a hoodie. Ah, they're busted already. <laughs> but here, here's the thing, Rob. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in what you said. And there's a there's a whole bunch of things come to mind. First, the approach you're taking is really uh, about strategy and an integrated response to a enemy to drive their mode of thinking. Now, in the world of cybersecurity, that's a rarity because most of when you read all the rags out there, most of this is about tech. It's always about tech. It's it's whatever analyst you like, and I won't mention them because everybody knows them. You read their rags and it's always about, oh, the latest zero trust framework, the latest technologies in zero trust, the latest XDR, the latest, latest DLP gadgets out there and blah, 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 blah. But to really be effective, all this stuff has to work together and do something that drives behavior on the enemy's part. It's, and it's that's exactly, always missed in the conversation. It's exactly the same as the defense space. We keep on talking about the effectiveness of the humor in cyber. You, the, the weakest link is our user because they click on the links. No, the weakest link is designing systems that don't appreciate humans are integrated as part of the system. And it's exactly true for the offensive side as well. You know, in this space, if I think of the definition of threat, if I use the military definitions, threat is capability by intent. Intent is what are their motivations, how are they going to make those decisions, and why are they acting the way they are? If we are only looking at capability, then we are missing half of the problem and half of the opportunity space. And for too long, I think we've been distracted by the shiny objects in cyber, the shiny technology solutions, and we've not thought about how does that technology get utilized effectively by us or by the adversary, and that we need to shape their relationship with that technology, but ultimately, 
if I use a military term, effects-based thinking, we have to focus our campaigns about achieving an effect on the adversarial decision-making, getting them to choose a different course of action than they otherwise would have done. And there is no such better environment for that than the virtual man-made environment that we have created called cyberspace, because we own the terrain. Very beautifully and succinctly said. Well, and, I try. And I hope people rewind that and replay that because there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. And, and it's, um, if you're going to build a proper cybersecurity program inside your organization, it's paramount that you consider what Rob just said to it. And this is for our listeners. Uh, otherwise, you're going to end up with a lot of capability that has no real effect. If you're designing software, you think about the user experience of the client, the consumer. If you're designing something, you'll think about how they're accessing it, engaging it. Why are we not doing that about our adversaries? What's their user experience in our network? And then how can we mess with that so that it makes it more difficult for them? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, do you think in civilian space, given that I'm just going to make a generalized statement, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, that line of thinking is, is not in place. Is that because of ignorance or is it simply because people are too busy checking boxes and they're really not interested in? I, I think the problem is, is that latter part, but I, I can understand why. So this isn't a criticism. You have to take an assurance mindset. Otherwise you get hammered legally, fiscally, in front of your shareholders and so on. So actually the assurance mindset is how we take that box here, how we take that box over there. And then if we've gone through the list of ticking all the boxes, we might have a bit of R&D money to play and do other things. And that's when you might consider deception. And actually, that's the conversations I regularly have with commercial organizations and some public sector organizations. There's lots of other things we've got to do first. It's not our priority. Actually, I think we've got to turn the tables on this. We have to realize that cyber and tasks through cyberspace are existential threats to our networks, our organizations, and our, our, you know, our very existence. If we don't see it like that, we have to think about defending it as if we're dealing with an existential threat. That will flip the assurance model. Yes. And and is, I guess uh, I'll ask the question point blank, is, is the lock and key model that we've built for cyber of really any value in thwarting bad actors? Well, I think it's... Let me put it like this. Um, I was just going to say something. I've changed my mind. I think the lock and key model <laughs> only works if there's repercussions, if a lock gets broken and people gain access to the material. What are the repercussions we can offer in cyberspace? None. So and there's a host like of before, reasons. The lock and key it. model is only half filled because there are no repercussions. If you know you access something you shouldn't be accessing and a ton of bricks is going to come down on you as a result, you're not going to access it. But the problem is we haven't got an established balance where the repercussions are being felt. Now, I am in no way advocating hackback, but I'm just challenging the model that you've suggested. So if that is the lock and key model we're adopting, what are the repercussions for violating the rules of that game? There are no repercussions. See, see the interesting thing is that, again, this is just in my personal, humble, uneducated opinion, <laughs> is that... Uh, you know, we build a defensive architecture, whether it be in, in the military or in cyberspace, to keep an enemy out. But the grounds in which we're playing, the enemy is already infiltrated. I, well, 
a little bit broader than that, I think. I think our, our understanding of our territory is we build the walls and stop them coming in. But chances are they're already there anyway. Right. Or there's not much we can do if they're inside. And if you think of castle designs from the medieval period or the Japanese mm -hmm. castles, it's layered security throughout. And it's layered security to make it difficult for the adversary to try to traverse through the, the, the castle. So what is the same in cyberspace? Defense in depth, layered approaches, thinking about ways we can manipulate the attacker's experience as they are progressing towards our networks and inside our networks. And if we don't have anything there, so they once they know they're inside our networks, they know they've got the amber nectar, they've got the gold, they can do whatever they want and they can relax, then we're not even making them work hard up here. You know, why can't we put things in to poison it in certain ways so they have to double check everything, they have to guess everything, they have to put more effort in to make sure what they've got is real. We've seen some great examples in the, um, in the 80s with the FBI polluting some of the data that the Soviets stole, leading to an explosion that could be seen from space in a, you know, an oil pipeline right. in the Soviet Republic. All because the Soviets gained access to our networks, started stealing the data, but they had no way of validating and verifying the data. So they just presumed it was real and legitimate. But when they started using it and things started going wrong, all of a sudden they had to cast doubt on every single piece of data they stole, not just one piece, the entire operation, because they didn't know when the FBI started poisoning it. So at that point, it undermines everything and they have to put a huge amount of effort in. And it led to an explosion that could be seen from space when they got it wrong with their pipeline. So why isn't that standard in our networks? Why are we not putting layers in that would get the attackers to question everything? And there's some great research by the NSA. How about this for a technical solution? We've, I've already challenged the need, as you have done as well, that yeah. we're two technology centrists. The NSA have done some brilliant research looking at two pen testing groups. They told one group of pen testers that deception was being deployed on the network, and they told another group of pen testers absolutely nothing. And they told them they had to get onto the network and gain access. Okay. Guess what the results were? Those who knew nothing about the network progressed through the network entirely normally. Those who were told that deception was being deployed on network progressed more slowly through the network because they had to question everything. That vulnerability over there that looks remarkably vulnerable and really open suddenly becomes, oh, is that really a vulnerability or is that the plan? Is that what we should be going after or should we be conscious of that? That, printers, that principle over there, that looks a bit smelly. That looks a bit suspicious. Perhaps that's the plan. Why, isn't we, why aren't we gaining access to this node over here? We should be able to do that. Why is this a lot harder? I'm questioning my own tools. So those who knew about deception, nothing more than that, just knowing that deception was being deployed, progressed slowly through the network, questioned their own progress, questioned their own abilities, much more than the people who didn't know. So a technical solution out there for all of your organizations is go and put a press release out saying you're thinking about and have just acquired some deception technology. Don't necessarily need to say who, just say you are deploying deception as part of your network. Because at that point, every red team or every bad guy who's started attacking your network and is researching your network will see that there's some information out there to say you might be using deception. And at that point, they have to double guess every step they take. And they have to question that every single time they make a step. And every piece of data they steal, they have to think about, is this real or is it not? And automatically, you've had a significant impact. And what have you done? Technical solution, you've got your comms team to release a press report, press release. That's brilliant. I, 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 I've always said, you know, take some old computers and uh, load them up uh, in a Cyrillic operating system, put Cyrillic keyboards on them, put them on the front line, make them easily accessible because anybody coming through is going to be like, well, am I in Russia? <laughs> 
<laughs> we own the environment. We can tell them the sky is green rather than blue if we want. So why are we not making them question everything? Well, this gets to legality, right? Does so, it? Okay. So th- there is a, oftentimes um, my colleagues in the industry were often hampered by this thing called the law that you can only do so much in terms of offensive actions. Now, so one place to start off is if we're on a war footing in cyberspace anyways, who cares about legality? Everything's fair in love and war. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Or what are your advice to, since you've been in the Ministry of Defense, what's your advice to the governments uh, of this world? So I think, first of all, what I'm advocating is nothing illegal. And I really do believe that. So I think we have to fundamentally ask ourselves some really challenging questions here. Most of the conversations about you know, the role of cyber and international relations will come down to whether or not it classes an act of war. Can you, can you retaliate in cyberspace against a physical action or could you use physical violence in response to a cyber attack? And there are some big strategic discussions going on about that. If there's you know, the role of you know, a NATO member state getting attacked in cyberspace, Estonia, for example, or example of Estonia in 2007, could they claim that uh, it was a Russian attack and therefore the rest of NATO's partners had to respond under Article 5? Uh, you know, there's some fascinating strategic discussions here, and that fundamentally comes down to one thing. What does violence look like in cyberspace? What does damage and harm look like in cyberspace? And there's some really necessary discussions that we need to have here, because most of our approach to legalities in cyber is either taking a property-based approach, you've damaged my property, so we'll deal with it that way, or they've taken a privacy-based approach, you've, you've invaded my privacy and you've stolen that data, no. And then at the strategic level between nation states, we're talking about violence and acts of war. So what we've got to realize is that the virtual artifacts, data, data moving through networks, wherever they might be positioned in the world, and there's a physicality aspect to that as well, do not neatly fit into the traditional legal regimes that we're used to in today's world. So it's a headache for everyone. But what that means is it's easy to default to a risk-averse mindset that by default, everything becomes illegal. Now, I am not advocating for hack back. I'm not advocating for doing anything offensive that is illegal. But I think there's a worthwhile conversation to be had about what is that scope of what we can do to be proactive in a space and manipulate the adversary's understanding of what's going on without doing anything that would get to the point of raising legal concern. Well, there's a lot to unpack in in, in that statement itself. I, it, it, it's... Um... If, if you look at what um, our deterrence is primarily based on a kinetic response, you know, p- people don't want to attack the United States or a NATO nation because of what can possibly happen from a kinetic side. Would why wouldn't that hold true on the cyber side? So if 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 I if someone attacks a country, a NATO, let's just pick on NATO for a second, a NATO nation state, and kills their power. Now, all of a sudden, um, people on dialysis are dead. Uh, people who need critical surgeries are dead because they can't get them. Um, th- there's a lot of critical infrastructure that maintains and supports life. All those people will be could be affected in a very adverse way. Why would that not necessitate a kinetic response? You know, I think it probably could be argued that, but then I would next come up with the WannaCry attack. So the WannaCry took out a lot of the British National Health Service. It attacked critical national infrastructure, our health service. It locked the computers. It meant surgery couldn't be conducted. 
I'm not convinced that that's a legitimate enough attack. There wasn't the intent to do it that would justify a legal, legally justified kinetic response. So I do think we get distracted by the strategic level discussion about responding with force. And I think that comes about because of us relying on a deterrence model that is based on a Cold War version of deterrence, which is the nuclear deterrence, deterrence by punishment. The idea that I've got a big shiny nuclear missile that is sitting there waiting to be fired if you do something that causes me harm. And at any point I can launch that and we'll have mutually assured destruction. So none of us would be worthwhile taking that step. And I think that has been a has been a a mindset that has been applied to cyber security policy and cyber strategy in governments around the world for the last 10 15 years but i think more recently we've seen some significant changes to that and i'll draw your attention to the us strategy okay. um, the defend forward strategy is very much based on the the concept of persistent engagement uh uh, brilliant academics richard harknett and fissa keller have talked about persistent engagement with enemy emily goldman and they talk about the fact that the internet isn't created like the globe, where you've got two nations divided by a massive ocean, standing apart, firing missiles at each other. But actually, the internet is much more interwoven, and we're constantly rubbing up against each other and connecting and engaging. And we have to think about deterrence in a different way. We have to think about engagement in a different way, because we can't stand apart. And at that point, deterrence by denial, deterrence by punishment doesn't necessarily fit in the traditional models. And we're in a new age of contest and confrontation in cyberspace. And that opens up a whole new set of thinking. I don't think there's a huge amount of deterrence by punishment that works in cyberspace. I'll be honest with you, going to kinetic response doesn't really seem to be something that I can see many of our cyber attackers as criminal groups and what have you are going to have to worry about. But I think what's really interesting is we can make them concerned about their effectiveness, concerned about their ability to perform, their ability to deliver what they need to do. And we can make them doubt that or make it much more harder for them to get the gold out of our networks that they think, is this worth the squeeze? And if we can get them into that space, they're going to be deterred from chasing after our networks in exactly the same way as a burglar might get deterred from our homes and attacking our house. And I think changing that model is much more effective. But why not? maybe put a little fear in them that their lives could be impacted a little oh, bit. I'm saying, I know you, you're not for hack, hack yeah, back, I, but I, I'm not but, saying, I think we should be putting fear. I, I want to use one of the examples I want to use. Remember Liam Neeson in that film taken where he's yes. on the phone saying, I don't know who you are, but when I find you, I'm going to come after I'm getting you. Why are we not doing that in our networks? We spend a long time observing and watching our attackers inside our networks. The medium dwell times probably still about 80 days. We do a lot of open source investigation on them. And there are some good examples where the attackers have still been inside our networks when we've identified them wearing hats in China. And I'll, I'll think about the, um, the CrowdStrike report, or I can go back to Mandian APT1, where we, we were watching and observing the attackers and doing our due diligence on them and finding out who they were. And if I think of most of your kind of threat hunters, you're chasing the threat, but you're also doing open source research on them to identify who they are. So why not mess with their heads? They're inside our networks running around. Put a nice shiny token in our network. Oh, that looks interesting. And they open that token up. And you know what? Wouldn't it be good if it showed them a photo of inside their office? Or if it showed them an ability that we knew who they were? Exactly the same way as Liam Neeson did in that film. And wouldn't it be really interesting if we made it so they had to question whether they wanted to carry on doing what they were doing or think about protecting themselves? It's exactly what happened to the US military, the Syrian Electronic Army in the mid uh, 2010s, okay. hacked into a CENTCOM's Twitter account. So not oh. into CENTCOM files, 
they hacked into CENTCOM's Twitter account and posted a spreadsheet of serving US military personnel in the Middle East with their home addresses, social security numbers, and so on. Wow. And they said, Americans, we're coming after you. Now, you tell me, if you're a serving per member of the US forces in the Middle East and your home address has been put up online, are you going to be focused on your day-to-day -day task in the Middle East or are you going to be making sure that your family's protected, whether they moved into hiding? Um, there was a good example. The Shadow Brokers stole some, uh, stole some great capabilities from the CIA or the NSA. I can't remember who. Yeah, it was the and NSA, then, I think. Yeah, and yeah. put them online. And then they called out a current cybersecurity expert and said, we know you're involved in this when you're inside. And you know what? He suddenly became scared to travel to different places because he didn't know who the Shadow Brokers were. And all of a sudden, he didn't want to be in a country that might have extradition treaties with whoever it might be. So he started questioning his own freedom of mover. I would be doing exactly the same. I'm not criticizing him, but that's putting the fear into him. So what are we doing in terms of our adversaries and that? We're putting legal notices out through the FBI, you know, most wanted on these people. And that's making them think, oh, I can't travel here. I can't travel there. So what are we doing inside our networks as private organizations, not as nation states? What are we doing inside our networks to make them think we know who they are? And even better than that, if you're worried about the legalities of the fact that we might have their personal data, and there's probably personal data issues here, which just shows the irony of the whole situation. Yeah. If you're worried about that, why don't we become fortune tellers? Why don't we become the crazy old lady who sits at the end of the pier and tells you that she can contact your dead relative? And I'm sure there are some legitimate people who can do that. But she can talk to me as if she's in touch with my dead relative. And I can believe that through a series of linguistic skills and concepts and that. So why can't we use that kind of cold reading technique and put that in our document so we don't actually know anything about the bad guys, but they're already nervous, they're already panicking because they're inside our network and they know we're going to come after them because we said we are, and we put this information there to make it look like we know who they are so they have to second guess everything. And I bet you that will still have an effect even if we don't know anything about them. Oh, I, I'm certain it would. But it'd be even better if if we could actually tell them, hey, you know what? By the way, uh, <laughs> this is what's going on. This is where you live. It's a nice neighborhood. I really like it. I might be coming for a walk Sunday afternoon. Whether I I'm coming. But, I don't, but that's what I mean. I don't think there's different scales there in terms of how risk averse you are. Your lawyers might be nervous about you publishing private details of you know, your personal data of your attackers. Well, okay, so be it. Are we really that protective over it? But you know, yeah. if you're not, then let's use the cold reading technique. But whatever we are doing, let's mess with their heads. Let them do the heavy lifting. And at the moment, we're not doing enough there. I think there's so many cool things we could be doing. Think of Hollywood films. You know, everyone watches a Hollywood film. I'm conscious we're recording this when we've got Barbie just released at the weekend. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm queuing up to go and watch my Barbie film soon. Um, my but, kids just went sight. But, you know, everyone has watched a Hollywood film. Everyone has felt sad, has felt excited, has felt scared, has hidden behind the sofa. And it's a two-dimensional film. If we can use the Hollywood skills, the set designs, the movie experience that you can use in Hollywood inside our networks to give the attacker a user experience that makes them sad, gets them upset, gets them scared, gets them questioning their life choices in exactly the same way everyone does when they watch a Hollywood film, wouldn't that give us a much better level of engagement with our attackers? It and you would. know what? I think that would be a much more exciting space for our operators to be working in our cyber analysts to be working in because they're not just doing the handle turning with the alerts and trying to catch that alert over there that's not very exciting let's empower them to be cyber ninjas let's empower them with all the tools they can to face our attackers and engage them and that would be a much more appealing pro project for them
wouldn't that take a little bit of pressure off the sock teams as well? It would make it a lot more interesting, I would I, think. I think it would sex it up for them. I, I think they'd be loving it. At the moment, the sock team has to, you know, let's be crude about this. You make a decision about a job in a sock role based on how much money you're going to get. And you realize you're going to get flogged for a few months. Yep. If Milton comes in, you're going to get flogged even harder. You might get a free bit of ice cream because you're doing 24-hour shifts. But you know what? Most of your friends are working remotely. So are you. You're doing what you need to do. And in a few months' time, when you're a bit burnt out, one of your other friends from another organization says, come and work for us. It's better pay. It's better rates. And yeah, you do the same job for more money. And then you go, okay, then I've done my time here and I move on. Now, we've got to talk about investing in our staff. We talk about diversity of thinking. We talk about that. But let's give them the skills to fight. I, I put a po post up the other week or a few months ago. Um, how do we how do we have the end of how do we make our sock operators the end of level bad guys in computer games? So if you think about computer games, there's a bad guy. Mario takes on Wario and fights yeah. him to get to the next level. What you know, defense in depth, layered security. Who are our end of level bad guys? What are we doing to make the the attackers rage quit from our networks? Because it works in a computer game, and you see people throwing their laptops out the window or keyboards into monitors because they're so frustrated with this evil bad guy at the end of the level. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we empowering our operators to have the tools and the techniques to throw de deceptive devices over there, to throw tools over there? How can we get them to manipulate the experience of the attacker so they don't know what they're doing? We could have so much fun. That would be so engaging. It would reduce burnout and stress, I'm pretty sure, because these guys would be enjoying the fight. And I'm using that word carefully, but I mean it. Yeah, you know, but we get thwarted by the attorneys who often tell us, look, we, we don't know how much of this is going to, is I'm, legal and how much of this can, will the government support it? And and if you look at all their, the governmental policies, they're based on some antiquated concepts. They're not based on what's happening in cybersecurity. But I think this is when we have to be really specific in our language. We have to take away language such as deception and we have to talk about what we're actually doing. And at that point, oh, I'm going to deploy a Microsoft Word document in our network that might use some language that doesn't say anything about our attacker, but might imply the attacker might know, we might know who the attacker is. And the lawyer will go, so right, let me get this wrong. You're just deploying a Word document. Yeah. You're deploying it outside of your network in the attacker's own network? Nope. Well, you're just putting it in your network. Yep. And who's going to have access to it? Uh, whoever should not be allowed to have access to it, it should be a hidden area. Okay, so it's not going to get accessed by anyone else unadverted? Probably not. Okay, so we're just coming back to the fact we're just talking about deploying a Word document. Yeah. What's the legality there? What's the legal issue there? They're going to come back and say, well, how do you know who this hacker is? Do you well, have their IP address? Did well, you reveal it? Did well, you exactly. So we don't even need to do that. We can just make them nervous that we know who they are. So let's use the cold reading techniques. Let's take that. Let's take that. Let's oh. take the legal issue away for the time being, get them comfortable with that, and then bring it in and go, okay, now we've done this research on them. We are confident it's them. It's here. They're attacking our network. Do we really want to have this issue? And you know what? At that point, most of the conversation comes around attribution and the, the geopolitical aspects of attribution. We, we'll get internet security companies who will give them, and I'm slightly cynical, apologies, they will give them a character name and do a cartoon of them. I've never known another era of warfare where we caricaturize our enemy apart from when we were doing parody and propaganda. But you know what? I can list a series of animals with the various degrees of weird characteristics, and that's all of our bad guys because the internet securities do not want to be part of the geopolitical attribution problem, and I get that. But at the same time, 
let's move it into another operation of warfare. Let's take operations in. Uh, let's take operations in Ukraine at the moment, and it's probably okay. a sensitive topic. Yeah, but if you are an Ukraine, Ukrainian defender, operating an operating or based in an operating base close to the Russian lines, and you're standing there, and a car approaches you, you tell the car to stop. Stop. You might put roadblocks in the way, and you can think of this in Iraq or Afghanistan, wherever any conflict zone, and the car carries on. It starts accelerating through the roadblocks. What's your first response? It's probably to shoot to kill. Yeah. You're not Make asking, oh, I wonder if it's Russian. I wonder if it's Chinese. I wonder if it's Iranian. No. I wonder if it's Vietnamese. You're taking the necessary defensive measures to protect your operating post, and then you're doing the investigation. And at the moment in cyberspace, we get distracted by a very important geopolitical concern of attribution. But actually, for the organization, the measure should be, what do we need to do to stop this threat from adverse at, or crossing into our networks? And it doesn't mean we need to shoot to kill in cyber, but the same philosophy should apply. What measures are we doing without necessarily being holding ourselves to account to the attribution concerns that the FBI or the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK might have? What measures do we need to stop this attacker in getting in? And I don't think we see it like that. And we need to see it more like that. Have you seen public officials be open to the concepts that you're talking about? Um, so I think it's really interesting. I'm not going to allude to any specific organization or um or investment or project but i've already read mentioned one um there are other organizations both sides of the atlantic that are investigating the use of deception i can put it as bluntly as that um and you know what i think it's really interesting i'm arguing for deception for the proactive use of deception in cyber defense to change the behavior of the adversaries if you look at most of the deception tech market and i've used that word tech deliberately the deception tech market is on focusing on using deception to remain covert, to monitor our attackers or send an alert to our attackers. And some of those tools are brilliant. And I, I think of Thinks Canary, for example. Thinks, great product, put it in your network, get an alert, find out where they are. Fantastically simple. I do not know why as many organizations as possible are not scattering them around their networks to get this kind of tailored feedback system as where people might be and shouldn't be. That is a very specific use of deception for intel gathering, to understand where they are, when they might be moving around the network. Very effective. Brilliant. But that is one tenth of the potential for deception tech in shaping the behavior of adversaries. You know, rather than step on a landmine or step on a pressure pad that sends the alert to me via email, why don't we do something that gives them the equivalent of the landmine effect in warfare? What does that look like in cyberspace? You know, how do we get them to tread on something and the alert goes up? We know you're here. We don't need to tell them anything about them. We know you're here and you're not supposed to be here. At that point, they start making different decisions. It's very similar to a burglar alarm on a house. The burglar alarm on a house has two purposes. One, to deter the person from going into that house in the first place. Right. And two, for when that person goes inside the house, they're now questioning, has the alarm gone off? Is it a silent alarm? Is someone coming to get me? So on average, they spend less time inside the house than a house that doesn't have a burglar alarm because they're scared. What are we doing in our networks to do exactly that? It doesn't have to be that technical. It doesn't have to be super clever. It just has to be focused on their thinking and their decision making at every stage of the journey. But, you know, that's something that's not written about much is what is the psychology of the adversary? What's going on in their mind? Sure. You know? And, and, and I, I think, again, comes back to definition of threat, capability and intent. I've, I've mentioned this to some psychologists. In the past, warfare has been very much about kinetic operations fighting the fight, you know, yep. one tank fighting the other one, one tank falls over and then we have a winner. 
as we move into this effects-based world, this idea of shaping behavior, this has to be a holistic team fight. This has to be teams of different backgrounds. It means psychologists, anthropologists, social scientists, as well as technologists have to come together and think about how we're going to engage this attacker and how we're going to engage and have this fight. This fight and cyberspace, the thing I find brilliant about cyberspace is that it rewrites every single rule that we are used to in society. It rewrites rules of geography. I can now reach out to people in China and talk to them without having to worry about my geographical footprint. It rewrites the rules of physics, quite literally. It rewrites the rules of psychology. Every psychological experiment you can think of is about human to human reaction, interaction. Right. Can I, if you think of the um, Cialdini's principles of influence, weapons of influence, you know, the, yeah. I wear a high vis jacket and I walk through the door, someone holds the door open for me because I look like I've got authority and then they let me in. I'm now in a virtual domain. What does that look like? What do the principles of authority look like in the virtual domain? How do they play out? What are we, what are we seeing here? You know, what do the concepts of conformity look like? Trust. Me and you having this conversation. We are going through a computer to have this conversation. Yes. Computer-mediated communication. The traditional research of cybersecurity, computer sciences, back in the day before we had everything, was called computer-mediated communication. We have to think about that relationship with tech. This is human-augmented interaction. Technology re enables us to revisit everything. I've been having um, conversations with a team of digital forensics who, who do a lot of work supporting police investigations. I really want to set up a crime scene room where we have everything digital and smart technology. And I want to put someone in that room and I want to see how easy it is for us to use smart technology wrongly so we convince them the time is different. Because if I'm using digital devices to tell the time and I've got, you know, a smartwatch over here or smartwatch over here, I've got my computer telling me the time. I've got another, you know, Alexa telling me the time. Can I manipulate that so all of those sensors tell me the wrong time? And do I need to do that so all of the sensors tell me the wrong time consistently in order for me to go, oh, hang on, it feels like two o'clock, but everything else says it's three o'clock. Perhaps I've just been thinking about work too much and I've not noticed another hour. Well, what happens if one clock says one time and another clock says another time and another clock says a third time? What clock do I have confidence in then? How does that shape my decision making? How does that make me question the existence I'm in? There is so much we can do rewriting all of our theories of psychology, all aspects of science because of this virtual man-made environment. It's really exciting. And that's before we even talk about artificial intelligence, virtual reality, integrated reality. There's so much potential here to really manipulate the person's, the user's experience. And you know what, Rob, some of this, uh, what you just talked about, the, the time signals is a brilliant example because it, it's akin to if you go to the aircraft industry and you look at all the human factors work that's been done in air crash investigations and outcomes where false instrumentation readings were the genuine root cause of the accident, where the, the pilot was getting the wrong data. You, you get to see what behaviors human beings and decisions they make when they're completely thrown off their balance. Absolutely. And why not use that to your advantage? We can actually use that to our advantage. I had not thought of it in that way until you just mentioned this. Look, but... look at Stuxnet, the original weapon of cyber, did exactly that, relayed the wrong information in the control panel to the scientists. So they thought the centrifuges were spinning at the correct speed because the panel said so. And meanwhile... The virus was spinning them at their incorrect speed, faster and slower and breaking them. But to the panel, to the scientists, why would they not trust what the panel was saying? Because the computer never lies. 
the computer's always right. So there's something else must be going on. So that's exactly yeah. that example. Yeah, look at look at the air traffic controllers or look at the airport security. And this goes back to the defensive side. You know, you scan your bags at airport security. The poor person having to watch the monitor is looking for a bomb or whatever the image of a bomb might looks like. Yeah. They get regularly inserted dummy, dummy images to see if they're alert. There's no penalty for them if they miss it, but it gives them alert that they're not paying attention and they'll be swapped out and have a break or someone else will come and take over. Yeah. What's the equivalent in missing an alert in cyberspace, the SOC operator? You know, we've got air traffic controllers who are monitoring screens with large amount of flight data and they have techniques and devices to allow them to monitor how effective their eyes are looking at the screen and whether they're looking at the most congested space properly or whether they need a break. What is the equivalent of bringing that through in cyberspace to help our defenders defend more effectively and at the same time using it offensively to disrupt the attacker's experience of our networks? Because if we can use it to defend ourselves better and improve the effectiveness of our teams there, we can also degrade the effectiveness of the opposition. And we're not thinking like that at all. No, and I, and I have a feeling there's a ginormous, if that's a word, room for improvement uh, that's probably there in when you frame the conversation in the terms you've just put it. Because I think a lot of the data doesn't even exist. you know. And, and that's why I'm genuinely not worried about the legality concern, because if we are having those legal discussions, it means we've got the benefit of this and we're being more comfortable pushing ourselves to the limit of what we can do. But there's so much more we can do before that, before we get even into that dicey area of is this legal or not? So, you know, one question that'll come up and this gets back to the airline model is, Who's really responsible for cybersecurity? You know, the airlines kind of threw up their hands and said, look, we can't really. In, in the U.S., it used to be pre-9-11. It was all private contractors that, that did the work. And the federal government took it over post-9-11. So you, I, we've I, heard I it we said. Need, I think we need to ask ourselves some really fundamentally challenging philosophical questions, not psychological, philosophical questions. Another community of people who can bring valuable contribution to the cyber fight that we don't often think about. What is our theory of government here? What is the relationship between the individual member of the population and the government? What, are the, what is their expectation with regards to security and cyberspace? Because I tell you what, in the physical world, we have some expectations. We have the expectations that we pay our taxes and the yep. government will protect us, enable us to do business and secure us from foreign and hostile threats. Yep. Cyberspace, how does that work? And actually, it's more complicated than just worrying about the individual because we've got multinational organizations who straddle different nations. So do I, as a government, am I responsible for a multinational organization? Well, what happens when the multinational organization is more powerful or more effective than government? But we won't even go there for the moment. Let's yeah. just look at the relationship between the government and the individual. So here I am in cyberspace, operating away, working in my business and so on. Now, I don't know quite how it is in the US, but I'm pretty sure it's the same as the UK. You might get a tipper that there's a hostile threat actor coming towards you. you know, let's just pick one. There's a hostile Russian state threat actor coming towards you in cyberspace. Okay. In any other domain, what would happen? In the terrorist world, in the warfare world, what would happen? You would have police deployed on the streets with machine guns, and you'd yeah. have tanks parked at the airport just in case there's a threat. We've seen evidence of that in the UK with terrorist threats, yeah? yeah. We've talked about 9-11 and the measures put in place to deal with hostile takeovers of plane. So we know that the government felt responsibility to protect in that space. And by no means am I, with this argument, suggesting our government is failing us at an individual level from individual representatives. They're all working really hard. But I think there's some fundamental question, questions of what is the level of protection we should be expecting and who should be doing it? Is it 
the National Cyber Security Centre. No, I think they're the technical authority in this space. They might share tippers and pass information around and they might help us with our threat investigations. Is it the military, the Ministry of Defence? Well, you know what? They're kind of responsible for physical and kinetic warfare. I'm not sure they're best place to do cyber warfare in protecting us here. Well, is it law enforcement? And, you know, we've seen measures, if we think about the FBI and the um, Hafnian attack, they've taken measures to protect organisations. Interesting step by them to do that. But is that their role? What should their role be? Are they designed to do that? What is our expectations of government to protect us? In the UK, I actually feel sorry for the private sector. The reason is you get attacked by a hostile state actor. In any other domain, it would be you'd be protected by government. In this space, you'd probably get a tipper from government to say, watch out, they're coming. Oh, and by the way, can you share their TTPs when you've done your investigation so we can let everyone else know and let your competitors know that this is what the threat looks like so they can build their walls up and stop them coming in? Well, you've lost out your competitive advantage there. Are you really sure you want to do that? And I do agree the whole model of information sharing and that everyone, you know, rising tide and all that. But you shared the information about your attackers. You've suffered corporately. You've suffered with your share prices. Oh, and actually, you've also had a breach, which means your data has been stolen, which means there's a huge GDPR issue in the UK, which means you're probably going to get punished by the rest of the government and get a huge fine. So you've been caught with your trousers down, quite literally. The bad guys have come and got you. And then the UK have gone, oh, yeah, Tipper, here they come. Oh, by the way, can we share the data? And also, you know, you're going to get fined for it as well. You should have done better. It doesn't feel like a constructive model. And by no ways am I criticising the kind of collective approach of any part of that, that system in dealing with the cyber threat. But I don't think we've got the model right for the theory of government and the relationship between state and population. And what you just said explains, I mean, there was a major contractor that had a breach in the UK recently. Uh, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. They didn't I, report it. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively informed individual. I'm not technical, as I've said. But you know what? I have no idea where my data is and who has my data. And I don't know how many times my data has been compromised. So realistically, why should I bother? And that is completely the wrong attitude that we have in cybersecurity at the moment. It should not be at the point where I've been compromised so many times because supply chain attacks have happened in this organization, in that organization. Recently, my, I've been having emails. Oh, by the way, your data has been breached by this supply chain attack. Here, have 12 months free identity protection on the Internet. Three weeks later, oh, it's been breached somewhere else. Here, have three months or 12 months free identity protection. Well, that's great. But I have no way of legitimately knowing where my data is being held by these organizations and where it's being compromised. So what point does my data become meaningless? And actually, what should I be worrying about now? I should be worrying about people exploiting that data, and that information, making attacks on me, social engineering and so on. We are not protecting ourselves in the way that we need to. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that there's a solution out there that is instant. But I think we really have to challenge our assumptions here and our philosophy. I I couldn't agree with you more. There's some foundational things that have to change, that have to be done yeah. uh, for us to become much more effective as a deterrence and defensive mechanism in, in, cyber, in cyberspace. And, and I think it's, I'm going to say, I think that's a philosophical approach and a theoretical consideration of how does this work. And this is why I really like the persistent engagement model, because it gets us to think about the internet differently and operating in the internet compared to the Cold War age of you know, stalemate, a detente situation where we're not actually fighting with each other because we stand apart and we don't want to, 
We don't want mutually assured destruction. We're not in that space anymore. We need to think about what this space looks like. And this means we are persistently rubbing up against each other in cyberspace, interacting, engaging, interfacing. We're in a globalized age. We cannot disconnect. No, we can't. And and we have foundationally traded, you know, convenience for security. That's that's yeah. and that's not going to change. Uh, that genie's out of the bottle. And and it's and it's appreciating that benefit and recognizing how we can take measures against that. I, you know, another example, and I'll go back to defensive space. I, you know, I have a password manager, but I have a couple of laptops because I work for different organizations. One of the organizations doesn't allow me to have a password manager on their, on their laptop, which is fair enough, but they won't need me to have an updated password. And then I have to use a VPN when I'm on that laptop. So I have to type my password in three times to make it secure and access everything. But you know what? I can't use my password manager. I can't use it three times. So, you know, the first time it gave me the chance to update my password, I used a complicated 15 character password with it, all the bells and whistles on. Second right. time, I was a little bit frustrated. Third time, I was like, just give me the easiest password I can remember, because every time I have to type it in three times just to get onto the VPN. That is not good data security and computer security at all. And it's because we're not taking a holistic approach to this. We're not thinking about the user experience again. We're not exploiting that for offense. And we're not thinking about it for our defense as well. That's... You're spot on. Uh, getting getting people past that assurance mindset is the challenge that we've we've seen to actually tackle the problem you just described. Uh, it's it's very very difficult to cross the chasm. They're like, look, I got PCI compliance, I got HIPAA, I got high trust issues. I'm checking these boxes. The auditors say I'm great. And, you know, privately, I've even had, you know, some CISOs say, look, the longevity of a CISO in an organization is two to three years. Why do you think that is? And Don't want to be on the receiving end of pain. Yeah. You know, shit's going to hit the fan. There's going to be a fall guy. That fall guy is me or fall gal, whatever the case may be. And that's why they get paid really well. Let's be honest about it. You know, you're riding that wave for as long as you can, taking the paycheck and you're hoping you're not going to get hit. That's yeah. But that's not how you build a great security. That's not how you build a great defensive architecture and deceptive architecture and actually affect security with a positive change. I think I think there are positive communities out there. I think that the insurance industry is going to lead the way here. I really do. So in the same way that with car insurance, house insurance, the questions are, are you taking these measures? Have you put these measures in place? I think we're going to see that with aggressive defense or sorry, proactive defense measures. So they're going but to be do you think, How will that be different than PCI compliance or GDPR? or? Because uh... I think we're going to get literally burnout and boredom from it. And, and I mean that honestly, I, we are losing this war. You know, the war on the drugs has nothing compared to this war. Look at the number of attacks that are going on every day now. You know, we are fighting a fight that we are horrendously losing. As a, as an individual, I can't remember how many times my data has been compromised by networks, nothing to do with me. So how is this a secure space to operate? We need to be in a space where we need to be in that competitive environment. And the competitive advantage we can gain by using these techniques means that we outrun the competitor against us. It's the old adage of, you know, I only need to run faster than my uh, my colleague to make sure the lion doesn't chase me and chases him instead or gets him. That's where we are. We, we're in that dog-eat-dog world. We have to think about it like that. And I think that, along with measures to recognize that there's so much more we can do to proactively engage, proactively fight, where the insurance might be driving it. I think we're seeing um, USDID introducing requirements for suppliers to use deception now as a way of protecting some of their supply chain. 
it's going to be encouraged through that model, which is a flip from the insurance model, or at least it should be a flip from the insurance model, unless we just don't default to tick the box process. But this is where there's some really exciting research and development that needs to be done. We're not in a place where it's mature. I'm not arguing it's mature yet, but this is where we need to be exploring. And there's some fascinating research being done around there that is just showing what could be possible here. Rob, we're going to have to get you back for part two on this. There, there. You just, with the whole insurance model, you opened a can of worms and I'd love to talk about it. We've had several discussions on the show about it, but you've taken a very different approach and um, we'd love to get you back and have a in-depth conversation on that because uh, that like one might have legs because it's money and money Absolutely. talks. <laughs> yeah, and, and if we're not seeing the existential threat of cyber attacks as money-driven discussions, then we're out of the game. If we're seeing it as technology-related discussions, we might as well give up now. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. But I do want to give you a minute or two here to plug anything you'd like to if, if, and let our audience know about. Well, uh, well thank you. I guess um, one of the things I'm passionate in, as you can probably hear, is deception. And I'm also passionate in bringing different perspectives to cybersecurity and the cyber world we're operating. We need a holistic whole of society approach to this. I would be remiss not to highlight the Cyber 912 Strategy Challenge. I believe it's a fantastic initiative around the world. Check the Atlantic Council out. Um, particularly those who might be interested in supporting the UK initiative that we're driving, please do get in touch. This is about encouraging students to have the experience to bring through those complementary skills that are so desperately lacking in society with regards to cybersecurity that it's not just about the technolo technological skills that are missing. It's about those ability to make critical decisions, to critically analyze data and make informed judgments, to brief effectively at the board level, to communicate about the concerns, communicate about the risks in such a way that better decisions can be made. So it's a great initiative. It brings a diverse student body to fight in cyberspace. And we're seeing some great transitions from university students who'd never even thought about cyber before to come and participate on this initiative where they play the role of advisors um, to government in a time of a cyber crisis. And then before you know it, we're putting, pairing them up with sponsors and government representatives, and they're finding themselves having fascinating careers, working with a sponsor, joining their graduate scheme, applying for future jobs, working in government. And it's a really cool and interesting initiative. So I'm taking the opportunity to promote it. If anyone is interested in it, I can put you in touch wherever you are in the world with a relevant scheme. And if you're particularly in the UK, this is just me talking to UK folk, do get in touch because I need you guys to come along, meet the students, engage with the students, potentially even sponsor us or give us some prizes to give to students. And we'd be delighted to have you involved. It's a really great initiative. I've got a great team behind me and we're only going from strength to strength over here. And I'd love to get more people involved and aware of this initiative around the world because I'm a massive believer in it. And, and you know what? Send us a link, Rob, and we'll put it in the show notes as well when we push this out to everybody. Brilliant. And I very much appreciate the window to allow me to do that. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you for being here. You've been fantastic. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to part two here. There, there's so much to unpack. You, you're good. brilliant, Rob. And uh, please continue to do the work that you're doing. Well, I say I'm, I'm a massive imposter in cyber, so I can only apologize for being an imposter, but I'm having fun and I believe I'm adding value. And that's the key thing for me. So, so. Thank you so much, Rob. I look forward to our next chat. Take care.